This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. I am here today for another policy update with Dana Hepper from Children's Institute and James Barta from Children First for Oregon. Dana and James, welcome. Thanks. Welcome back, I should say. Thanks for thanks for coming back for a second round. It's great to be here in person. I know there's, uh, yeah, instead of the, on the phone, it's great to have you here in the CI offices. There's so much happening in Salem right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to talk about what's what's happening on the ground. I know that we had the vote last week for for the bill, the $2 billion package for education, which includes the early childhood investments, passed the House. It's now headed to the Senate. What is happening with the senators? So the Senate was scheduled to vote on the Joint Committee on Student Success Package on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, the um, 12 Republican senators did not, well, 11 of the 12 Republican senators did not come to Salem. And that left the Senate with only 19 members out of the 30. And that is not enough members to conduct business. And for example, that is not enough members to vote. They need uh, 20 out of the 30 to take a vote. And so the vote on the Joint Committee on Student Success Package is delayed. And it was delayed again today as we speak on Thursday. And this sounds like it will continue into next week. We're not sure how long. Okay. What what happens if we get into next week and we still have we don't have a quorum in the Senate? Senate can't move, make motions. What 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 happens next? Does this go on indefinitely? It could. It really the debate has moved in a sense from the floor of the Senate to the public, and this will definitely continue if Republicans feel this strategy is working. Yeah, interestingly, today, I think the Republican uh, senators released a statement that kind of articulated what they want in exchange for coming back to work. And it's quite a long list um, covering a host of issues completely unrelated to um, early childhood and education funding, everything from, you know, gun laws to um, juvenile sentencing to... uh, Carbon reduction. Carbon reduction, exactly. And so it's you know, unclear whether the Democrats who remain in Salem are going to look at that list seriously or kind of hold out. The one thing that technical thing that they're allowed to do to try to get Republicans back is they can send out state police to actually force them back. But that would be a pretty extreme move. I think everyone is hoping this can get resolved without taking that step. And state police can't do that if if these senators choose to hang out on tribal lands, like at a casino or across state lines. Is is this something that's happened before in the Oregon legislature? The last time I know of it was 2001, when the Democrats were the ones who walked out, and it was over redistricting. I don't know the details of how that played out. I'm sure some of our listeners would, but uh, it's not unprecedented. But that was over, you know, setting up districts, and this is over children's education. When, when you talk, when you're talking about there's this list of demands. These are these are other bills that are up for consideration that the Republicans are saying we want to make sure this bill passes in exchange for a vote. That's the negotiation that's happening behind the scenes right now. Yeah, we should add that uh, part of the demand is that uh, there's cost controls, aka. PERS reform, the Public Employee Pension Program. And they also want the bill to move back to committee for further debate, which if they make any changes, that means that the House vote 
that took more than six hours would have to be done again, which I believe is simply a non-starter. And is that is that uh, that's happened before, where uh, a bill might pass the House and it gets sent back to committee? I mean, that's that's not necessarily an unusual step, but in this case might seem so because that vote took so long. Is there any other context there? Well, given how long student success has been working on the bill and the bipartisan participation that did occur before session even started and then during session, uh, the Senate Republicans had two members on the committee that could have chosen to uh, work on the bill at any time. And this, the situation is also, this is, this is a vote that is happening uh, along party lines. The House vote did end up being along party lines. There was one Republican um, from Eastern Oregon who said in committee that he hoped to be a yes on the floor, but when it came time for the floor vote, he was a no. So in the House, there are 38 Democrats and 22 Republicans. And there was one Democrat and one Republican absent. So the vote was 37 Democrats in support and 21 Republicans in opposition. They needed 36 votes in support in order to pass this bill. Um, and so they, they got 37, but they were all, they were all Democrats. Okay. And in the Senate, again, it's 18, 18 votes, um, which would be the Democratic supermajority for, for the bill to pass and then head to the governor's office. Yeah, but it'll be interesting to see if the if the Senate votes break down in the same way as the House. I don't know whether it will be a completely party line vote in the Senate or whether there will be a Democrat who ends up voting no and a Republican who ends up voting yes. All eyes this whole session have been on Senator Betsy Johnson, um, who represents Northwest Coast of Oregon. And she hasn't been quiet about her you know, questions about the Joint Committee on Student Success process and the and the Student Success Act. And so I think people are wondering whether she's going to be a yes or a no and whether a Republican is going to step in. And I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Senator Johnson being a Democrat. Yes. Uh, from Scapoose. Yep. Can we talk about some of the options that are kind of floating around in terms of the negotiation? What's Is, is there a possibility of PERS reform um, linked to this? Is there what other what other things might be attached to this negotiation process? Well, those discussions are in very small rooms. <laughs> and so uh, we're unsure uh, what is happening uh, next. They are continuing. We know that. We also know that there's a dissension among business and Republican groups as well, where the organ business industries is neutral on the bill which came as a, quite a surprise to many of the Republicans. And they, I understand, reaffirmed that position uh, earlier this week. Can we say more about that uh, unexpected position? How Do we know how OBI, Oregon Business and Industry, came, uh, came to that position? Yeah, I think, like James said, these are meetings that happen that James and I are not necessarily getting invited to. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) It is, you know, the Speaker of the House, the Senate President, the Governor's Office, and one or two other folks in a small room are kind of negotiating amongst themselves. And when you have a group that tight-knit, sometimes you don't get a leak. (laughs) And so you don't get to find out what was actually negotiated rumors around the building are that they kind of struck a bargain on the Joint Committee on Student Success legislation and on paid family leave, Mm -hmm. paid family and medical leave, and they connected those two. And the paid family and medical leave proposal may have been softened and rolled back a little bit from the initial best practice plan put on the table. 
to something that's a little bit less robust in the beginning, but that's rumor I have not seen, the revision. Well, uh, there has been a reporter that tweeted out portions of the letter that uh, the OBI president uh, sent to members and that indeed that was part of the discussions uh, paid family leave would move forward because what was understood is the polling found that if it did go to the voters, a much stronger version that employers would have to pay the entire amount for would be more likely to win in the ballot. And so the business community recognized, well, this plan that we've been discussing, which was 50-50 now, it'd be 60% employer or 60% employee paid, 40% employer would be their best bet. And so that became part of the negotiations. It's still, my understanding is it's still a program that would be at least as good as Washington or California. Let's talk about the Student Success Act a bit itself, because I I want people to understand that this is really a a combined package that supports Mm -hmm. Early childhood, uh, about 20% of this this $2 billion package would be dedicated to early childhood, but then it's also a support package for K-12. Uh, we had the, the walkout in several different areas around the state yesterday. Portland Public Schools, which is Oregon's largest district, was part of that walkout. 25,000 teachers came to downtown Portland. Teachers and kids and families in support of that walkout. It's interesting to note, I think, that The walkout was not a way to ask for pay increases or salary changes. These are really teachers voicing their concerns about the resources that they have for kids in their classrooms. They want to reduce class sizes. They want more more services for kids who really need help. So lifting up the, the needs of students in a different way, I think, is important to understand. So let's let's just talk about the Student Success Act and what's rising up in terms of what's really important in that act? Yeah, the act does two things. One, it raises $2 billion in taxes, looking at uh, primarily the amount of money that businesses take in in Oregon, and then taxing a small portion, about 0.5% of that would be paid as a tax. And then it says how we're going to spend the money, and we're going to spend it in three big buckets. At least 20% of the money will be dedicated to early childhood. At least 50% of the money will be dedicated to a K-12 through investment fund. And up to 30% of the money will be dedicated to some K-12 through statewide initiatives. And so the early childhood piece is obviously the piece that we've been working on most closely, but there are some things that I think would be broadly supported in those other two buckets as well, like investments in high school graduation and um, summer programs and expanding access to school meals um, to another group of low-income children and um, communities that have large proportion of low-income children. Um, so the spending in the bill is, you know, across early childhood to K-12 and um, a lot of things that I think people care about and that are based in evidence and research about what we know makes a difference for children. House Bill 3427, the bill that we've been talking about for a few months now, That just outlines those parameters, you know, that 20% shall go to early childhood. The legislature has actually been working on another bill that gets into the details of how that money will be spent. Mm -hmm. And that is um, House Bill 5047. And interestingly, that bill had bipartisan support. So it came out of Joint Committee on Students. No, it came out of the Ways and Means Education Subcommittee. It went to the full Ways and Means Committee, and the vote there was 16 in support and two against. Hmm. So there were a number of Republicans and Democrats supporting um, the investment side. So it's clear that the bigger debate is how you raise the money and whether there should be cost containment associated with the package. 
So specifically in the bill, this money will come in, you know, Oregon writes our budgets for two years, and this money will come in in the second year of our two-year budget. So um, where we normally talk in two-year numbers, which would be $400 million for early childhood, for this we're talking in one-year numbers, so that'll be $200 million for early childhood starting in the fall of 2020. And there was really a robust investment across the early childhood system, which is exactly what we've been, James and I have been working along with 30 other organizations to ask for. So first, the proposal is to fully fund early intervention, early childhood special ed, which are services for children zero to five that have disabilities and delays. So that's really exciting. We should actually be able to get children and families this level of services that research tells us that they need to maximize their potential. And part of part of the benefit of investing in that in that strategy is that there's also the potential to reduce special education services in K-12, which is yeah. which would result in a cost savings for K-12. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. A second key investment is relief nurseries, which are parent child child abuse prevention strategy in Oregon that really is focused on stabilizing and strengthening the whole family and creating a healthy home environment and giving children developmentally appropriate and supportive environment to go a few times a week. The Early Childhood Equity Fund is established in this law and funded at $10 million in the second year of the biennium, and that will be an investment in culturally specific and affirming early childhood strategies, which are also often working with both the child and the parent to make sure a kid is ready for kindergarten. There's going to be an expansion of preschool, both through the Oregon Pre-Kindergarten Program, which is our state's investment in Head Start for very low-income families, and in Preschool Promise, which is our state preschool program that um, serves families up to 200% federal poverty. So we should be able to serve thousands of additional children who currently don't have access in those programs. And for Head Start, we should also be able to offer more programs that are for the full day, not just a half of a school day, programs that offer transportation so that kids can attend on a regular basis despite their family's access to reliable transportation, and finally be able to raise Head Start teacher salaries, which currently average about $29,000 a year despite most Head Start teachers having a bachelor's degree. We also were successful in advocating for some investments in early childhood educators to make sure that people have access to professional learning opportunities, coaching, continued education, and some dollars that will go toward young children, zero to three. So funding for Early Head Start, which is the Head Start program that starts with families at birth or um, while pregnant. Healthy Families Oregon, which is a home visiting program in Oregon that supports families and prevents child abuse. Um, and parenting education, which we've never invested as a state in before. So a really great addition to the system. These investments align really well with what the Early Childhood Coalition has been asking for um, since before session. There are just two little things we didn't get in the package that we wanted, but everything else we did. Um, so we did not get a $5 million investment in child care for infants and toddlers. So we're still fighting for that through the ways and means process. And we did not get a uh, small $250,000 investment in Reach Out and Read, which is where doctors talk with families about reading at home. But again, we're hoping that that can happen outside of Joint Committee on Student Success through the regular budgeting process for the state. That was That's a great a lot, outline. So. Yeah. <laughs> so hope you enjoyed all those numbers. But <laughs> <laughs> Take notes. It's online. But it's true. It's online. And uh, there's a great overview. It's, uh, yeah, we're so close. It's uh, given the 
situation with childcare in the state, and especially for infants and toddlers, we're certainly hoping in the future we can build these contracted slots. And uh, and Reach Out and Read is an amazing program that takes the volunteer time of pediatricians and and gets books to families when they uh, need it the most. Next steps. We're yeah. in a, we're in a situation where sometime soon we hope the, the Senate has a chance to vote on this bill. What are the scenarios? What 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 happens if we get the uh, if we get eighteen senators to vote? If it goes to the governor's office, what if that doesn't happen? What are what are some other possible scenarios to consider? I think it's really unlikely that this bill will not get voted on. It, at some point, there will be a quorum of twenty senators, and eighteen of whom will vote for this bill, and it will go to the governor, and she will have a nice signing ceremony, and. Then the question is, will it get referred? I suspect uh, it will go to the voters. There's enough people who uh, who want to make sure that this uh, particular revenue package uh, doesn't get implemented. And I think, you know, as Dan had pointed out earlier, the, the appropriations pass in a bipartisan manner. The House Republicans recognize, yes, we want these investments in education. We just don't like the mechanism. Mm-hmm. Now, what's important for us when and if this does go to the voters is that we remember that without this package, we are making a budget that, while still in the smaller end, has some built-in assumptions that this is going to happen. And if it doesn't pass, it would mean draconian cuts to K-12 and early childhood programs. Talk about that decision. How does that process work? It goes to the governor's office. It may or may not go to the voters. How does that decision get made? That decision about whether it or whether or not it goes to the voters likely will not be made by the legislature or the governor. Um, if the Senate passes this bill, which we hope that they will, although call your senator, email your senator if you haven't already, do <laughs> Please that. Please do so. <laughs> yes. No matter whether you're a senator as Democrat or Republican, hearing from you right now will help unstick the stuck wheels. When it passes the Senate, it will go to uh, the governor's desk, and the governor has indicated she would sign this bill, and then it becomes law. Now, it could be that people outside the legislature, or even legislators who voted no, <laughs> um, they might decide that it's worth you know, raising a couple hundred thousand dollars and collecting signatures from Oregonians to refer this to the voters. Um, so that would be the next step, and that would likely happen as soon as this summer. They'll have a they have a they deadline have, by which they have to. They have get ninety the days after signing die to uh, collect the necessary signatures, which I guess is four percent of the voters who voted in the last gubernatorial election. Uh, so you know, if you get asked to sign, don't sign. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> but it's pretty easy. The bar is pretty low for referring things to the ballot in Oregon, so it tends to happen a lot in Oregon compared to other states. And so then we would expect an election on this ballot. And I do think the legislature gets to decide when this goes on the ballot. And I think the common thinking now is it would be in January of 2020. So there would be a special election with this being likely the only item on the ballot. And then that's the time when we get out and knock on doors and remind people that even though they're not used to voting in January, this will be a really important time for them to fill out that one question and send in their ballot to make sure we uphold this policy. Great. So lots to watch for in the the coming months as this process unfolds. And in the short term right now, you both mentioned it, but it's important to contact your senator. I know that uh, there sometimes it feels like 
as as a general voter, we don't have much influence over what happens. And I think it's a good reminder that everyday people like you and I can contact our senators or contact other senators and let them know what our opinions are and that they are they are reading those emails, they're listening to those voicemails, and that your voice can actually make a difference. Is there any any other tips that you have for people who might want to do that? Well, I think Children's Institute has an action alert up on our website. So if you're not sure what to say, I'm sure it'll be linked to in the web posting that goes along with this blog that you can look there for some things to say. And, you know, I think it's always nice to be kind and respectful and voice your opinion and say you want your senators to vote yes on House Bill 3427 and any personal reason, a sentence or two, why you think they should do that. And I think even if you're calling people who are supporting what you want, it's still great for those folks to get calls and think like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to stay the course. I'm not wavering. I'm going to stay strong. I'm going to fight for this. And if you're calling someone who might not agree, then I think it's also great for them to hear from you because then they think like, okay, well, it sounds like voters in my district actually support this thing. And so maybe I won't stay at the casino until I get all seven things on my list, right? Maybe I'll be fine with one or two because I'm getting some pressure from my constituents. So I think calls across, no matter who your senator is, it's worth them hearing from you. Yeah, we hear from senators saying, well, I've been hearing from people in my district, such and such. And it's always frustrating when you realize that they're just hearing about you know, either they're hearing the opposite of what we think is the best position for young children, or they're just hearing about other bills. It's like, well, I just haven't heard from people. So it is really important. And as a former staffer, you know, we look at these and it's especially important that those couple sentences where you describe why is it important to you? You know, it, it's difficult to just write something out of the blue, I know, but, you know, use a template, but put in some of your own thoughts. That's really important to see that an individual is put a little bit of thought into it, and that makes all the difference. Before we close, can you talk about the, the revenue forecast? Well, this Wednesday is May 15th, is the, the revenue forecast that sets the budget for the upcoming session. And it's this time that marks the real beginning of the budget season. Now, it's been an interesting session with student success as its own separate revenue and budget, but the rest of the budget is still there. There's a lot of programs that are on the chopping block. And so there are a couple things to look for. There's the expected funds that come in for this uh, biennium, which all the taxes haven't come in yet. And then there's the projection for the upcoming biennium. Now, the uh, projection for this biennium will determine what, uh, how we in the session, what adjustments need to be made. And we are very likely going to have a personal kicker. And for budgeting purposes, that doesn't make any difference because that money just goes out of the government. Right. But there's also likely to be a corporate kicker. And the corporate kicker, due to a constitutional amendment passed few years ago, that money goes into education. And so that leaves open the possibility of, of writing uh, some of the cuts that have been made in higher ed and perhaps in other education programs outside of student success. Okay. So we'll definitely be looking for that in addition to the uh, coming biennium numbers. Yeah. And so like James said, this really kicks off the budgeting process. And a couple of weeks ago when we spoke, we talked about how this session, there have really been two budgeting processes for education. There's been one through the Joint Committee on Student Success, and then the other is the Ways and Means process, which is how usually the budget is written. So um, the Joint Student Success has come first. The big next step there is call your senator, get ask them to vote yes. That bill moves hopefully in the next week or two. Mm-hmm. 
But like James said, starting May 15th, they're going to dig into the weeds of saying, okay, are we going to keep our existing investments or any of those at risk for cuts, which kind of undermines what we've been trying to do in Joint Committee for Student Success. Sure. So we'll need to be involved in making sure that all of our current investments are protected so the new investments do what they're intended to do, which is build on our current investments and go farther for kids and families than we've been able to do so far. Yeah, whatever happens to student success in the next uh, few days, we still have another six weeks of session and a, a budget to complete. Great. Dana and James, thank you so much for joining me in the CA offices to record today. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, same here. This is the Early Link podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Be sure to sign up for our podcast available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever you may find your podcasts. You can also listen to our segments on our website at childinst.org.